So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as we begin reading in verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? He says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting... For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The gospel is obviously the key focus of the entire Bible. The gospel being that Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. The Old Testament looks forward to it. The New Testament explains it and tells us how to live by it. In fact, that's exactly kind of the point, I think, as we get to this passage. In the New Testament, we're called upon to do a few different things with the Gospel. We're called upon to believe the Gospel. Because it's in believing what Christ did for us and, and accepting that as for us that we 
come to faith in Christ, that we receive the forgiveness of our sins. But the Christian is called to not only believe the Gospel, but actually to live it. Because what Christ did for us in purchasing our salvation, uh, he, in doing that, He was also laying an example for us to follow. We find that expressed very clearly when we look at like uh, the book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It says that he looked down upon our situation and our needs, and he did not cling to heaven. It says he didn't count it as something that he needed to be grasped. In other words, held on to. It's saying that Jesus was in in heaven, in the splendors of all that is there, and in the pleasure of the Father, and for our sakes, He was willing to let go of that, to come to the earth, and then He grew up through our pains and our sufferings and our joys and our sorrows. He walked in our shoes, only to at about the age of 33, lay down His life and die on that vicious and cruel cross. And He would do that for us. But but look at what the passage of Philippians is telling them. It's telling us, do what Christ did. Don't cling so tightly to what you have. Be willing to let go of that to be able to help other people, to be able to benefit other people. You see, what Christ did for us in the Gospel, He did through looking not to His own interests, but to our interests and putting our needs above His. And He's telling us we need to flesh out the Gospel in the same way. We need to not be clinging to our own rights, clinging to our own interests. But we need to be willing to let go of those things to be a benefit to other people. You know, the Apostle Paul, in his relationship to the Gospel, he'd say in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. And the Apostle Paul had to go through a lot of sufferings because of the Gospel. Well, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. What does that mean that He was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, let me start with by telling you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that what Christ did on the cross was almost good enough, but not quite. That's not it at all. What Christ did on the cross was completely sufficient. It was a once and for all sacrifice. One sacrifice for all people, for all time, for every sin, paid for. What the Apostle Paul is talking about in that context is, he's saying that Jesus Christ came and suffered to pay the price for your sins. But he's saying, that doesn't get everybody to hear about it. The Apostle Paul is saying, I'm willing to suffer so that everybody gets to know about it. He's saying Christ died, He suffered for our sins, completely paid for them, but everybody doesn't know it. And so I will do whatever it takes to try to get everybody to know that they can be forgiven because of what Jesus Christ did for them. And that was what led to His suffering. That was why He was being hunted and why He was being persecuted. So you see, the Apostle Paul 
was going on to live out the gospel. He was putting everybody else's needs of hearing the gospel ahead of his own need of safety and security. That's exactly what he's telling the Corinthians that they need to do. Remember where we left off? They had written to him about a question. Do we eat meat that has been sacrificed and offered to the idols and then sold in the marketplace? Can we eat it or do we not eat it? And the Apostle Paul recognized that some people were going to have trouble eating it because of their former association with the temples. And some people were going to feel completely free to eat it. And he said, you know what? It really doesn't matter. It's just food. And you're not at the temple worshiping. It's just food. It doesn't matter if you eat it or not. He said, but here's the deal. For those of you that feel completely free to eat the food, what if you're eating it harms the person that doesn't feel like they can eat it? If you find yourself in a situation where you're going to do damage to your brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, wouldn't it be better for you to give up that right? He says, as for me, he says, I would never eat meat again if it, if that, if it meant that. I could gladly give it up. That was in chapter 8, and then he picks up back there again in chapter 10. So what's happening in chapter 9? Chapter 9 that we read, the Apostle Paul is giving his own example. He's leading by example. And he's saying, look, I'm calling upon you to be willing to give up your rights for the benefit of somebody else. And now he's going to show us how he does that. He's made a lifestyle out of doing just that. And that's what chapter 9 is all about. He's saying, follow my example. Follow my lead. Be willing to let go of those rights for the benefit of somebody else. Yes, it's okay if you do that. But you know what? If you're going to hurt somebody else, why? Why bother? Let's put their needs above our own. And that's exactly what he's doing, is he's encouraging them to live the gospel. He's going to show us through this passage how he does exactly that. He puts other people's needs above his own so that he can serve them, so he can win more people to Christ, so he can be a blessing to more and more people. He puts them above himself. It's so important for chapter 9 to be kept in its context. I find that chapter 9 has very little meaning unless you recognize its connection to the rest of the context around it. Remember, he's just got done telling them, be willing to sacrifice your rights if it causes your brother to stumble. Now in verse 3, he says this, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Examine him about what? Examine him about exactly the things he's been talking about. Well, what about you, Apostle Paul? Do you put other people's needs first? Do you surrender your rights? All of chapter 9 is about him surrendering his rights. The first thing he does is list them. And he starts off with the same one that he's been talking to them about. Uh, eating and drinking. In verse 4, do we not have the right to eat and drink? He says, well, look at me. Don't I have the right to eat and drink? But he's actually already told us what he would do with his right to eat and drink. He said, I would never eat meat again if it meant destroying a brother in Christ for it. So he's already told us that he's willing to relinquish that right. But then he brings up another one right after that in verse 5. He says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? Well, actually, he's already dealt with that too. Remember back in chapter 7. And he said, look, my preference is to stay, remain single. And for him, when you look at his life, for him to take a wife along with him would have been very tough duty for both the wife and for him. He said, you know what? I have the right to settle down, have a normal family life. But he says, you know what? I've given that up. I've laid down my rights to that in order that I might spread the gospel as far as I can spread it. But then he lists this last one, and this is the one that he's going to spend more time on, partly because he hasn't brought it up up to this point now, I think. 
And partly because he's going to make a big deal out of it to show how strongly he has this right and then how freely he can let it go. And that is making a living from the ministry. He says in verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And so he's saying, look, are Barnabas and I are the only ones that have to have another job outside of the ministry to, to keep things going? That we can't make our living from the ministry? The whole argument that he puts it together is all so that at the very end he can say, you know what? I don't want that right. I lay down that right. He's not trying to get anything out of them. He isn't even ready to accept a gift from them at this point, as we saw later in the passage. But the Apostle Paul is going to say, going to talk about this right that he has of making a living from the ministry. So then from there, he begins to unfold that before them and he lists argument after argument. In fact, there's seven different arguments that he lists on why he should be able to make his living from the ministry. The first example or argument that he gives is that of a soldier. He says, look, does any soldier go to battle at his own expense? And the answer to that is obvious. When you go to war as a soldier, everything is provided for you. Your clothes are provided for you. Your weapons are provided for you. Your ammunition is provided for you. Your mindset is provided for you. Even your commands, your orders, your job, your, your food, everything that you need is provided for you. Then the next example that he gives them is that of a farmer. Why does he farm his fields? It's because he's going to get the blessing of the crop that is yielded. But not only the farmer... Also, the laborer that works for the farmer. And the reason there, he talks about the hired person. If you've got a, guy, a hired guy watching over the sheep, he's at least going to get some of the milk from the sheep. He's going, to get, he's going to earn a wage from that labor. Then he goes into the law. He quotes from the law. And he says, look back into the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, it says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. He says, why did God put that in there? Well, it does seem kind of only fair. The ox is the one pulling the, pulling the equipment. The ox is the one putting in the effort. He ought to be able to at least eat what's in front of him as he goes. He says, is God really concerned that much about oxen or is there something deeper here? And he says, you know what? There's something deeper. He says the, the Old Testament law is, is pointing that the, the laborer, he deserves his pay. He says, so I should be able to live of the gospel. He points out other ministries. Because at the very beginning, he says, look, are Barnabas and I the only ones? And then later in the passage, he says, we should have the right, rightfully so, to be supported by the ministry, just like other people that are among you are being supported by their ministries. So in verses 11 and 12, he points out that there's other ministers that are being taken care of in that way. And then he points also to the temple. In verses 13 and 14, he looks back the Old Testament temple, before that the tabernacle, and he says, look, how were the priests taken care of? The sacrifices that came in, part of what they did, part of it went to the priests to be able to feed their families with. So they were supported by the ministry of the temple. And then also, he dealt with the teachings of Christ. And he makes a statement in verse 14 where he says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And I believe what he's referring to there is in Luke chapter 10, in verses 3 through 9, it says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, and no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. 
Do not go from house to house whenever you enter a town and they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. So the Apostle Paul makes this long argument. He lists seven different proofs of why those who serve in the ministry should be supported by the ministry. He's saying, look, this is a right that he, as the Apostle Paul has, is to be supported by the ministry. Now, all of that was not done to try to raise a support from that church for his ministry as he went traveling around. If you read back in in Acts, Paul's standard practice, you look at Acts 18, verse 3, uh, some verses in chapter 20. It was Paul's standard practice. He was a tent maker by trade. And he supported himself and others that were with him through making of tents. In in chapter 20, he meets with elders of another church and he says, I haven't coveted anybody's silver or gold. I've provided for all my needs. I haven't eaten any bread that I haven't paid for myself. So the Apostle Paul, though he says there's a right, I have a right to be supported by the Gospel. This is what he says in verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the Gospel of Christ. you see what he's doing? He's been telling them, be willing to let go of your rights so that your rights don't become a stumbling block to another Christian. Now, what the Apostle Paul is in the middle of saying is, I have this right of being of all three of these things, I have this right to be able to eat and drink. I'll lay that down if it helps somebody else. I have a right to have a a normal family life. I've set that aside so that I can spread the gospel. I have the right to be supported by the gospel. I don't want it. I set that aside. Why? Because I don't want anything to be a stumbling block. If you look through the New Testament, you'll find in places like in 2 Peter chapter 2, the book of Jude, you'll find the word are false teachers. And one of the things that stands out about a false teacher is they're in it for the money. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, you find that pastors, godly ministers, are not to be in it for the money. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, I'm preaching and I'm doing it happily. If I don't do it happily, I'm still going to do it because it's my responsibility that God has given, that God has given to me. He kind of reemphasizes it again in verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such a provision, for I would rather die than have anyone depriving me of my ground for boasting. The Apostle Paul says, I would rather die than be supported by you. Even though I've just argued, telling you I have totally right to do it, I don't want it. He says, I want to be able to offer the gospel free of charge. I don't want any hindrances getting in the way. And so he lays down his rights. Now, why did he just bring all that up? You know, I find it kind of ironic. You read through, he's got a seven-point outline on why you should support me. And then he's got one very strong point of why he will not take it. You go through all that argument to say, I don't want it. It's because he's just showing us his example. He's saying, look, I, I could have this and I could have this and I could have this, but I put it all aside. Why? Because I wanted to reach you, Corinthians, with the gospel. I wanted you to have a clear path to the gospel so that you could be saved. So you see, he's just leading by example. And he's telling us to do the same thing. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean you should do something. If something that you have the right or the freedom, the liberty to be able to do causes a stumbling block for somebody else, then when you're around that person, don't do it. In Thessalonians, he tells them, chapter 2, verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. 
Second Thessalonians chapter three verses seven through nine says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that it, we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And even to this church, he tells them, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Because there were, uh, the book of Philippians points out that they were his only supporter for a time. There were some people that gave to his ministry. He said, and when I was with you and I was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now, when you think about it, in every one of those communities, wouldn't it be very hard for somebody to claim that he was in it for the money? He's not going to get the ridicule that the, that the charlatan that comes in gathering big crowds and taking offerings in five-gallon buckets is going to get, right? He laid down that right so that there would be no stumbling block, no occasion for an accusation against him in those kinds of ways so that the gospel would go forward with power and with clarity. You know, I notice uh, uh, to a small extent, I notice it in my own experience. When I first moved here to pastor the church, and I have a higher respect for all pastors, whether they're in it full time or, or split their time between another job. For the first year and a half or so that I came and I moved here, I didn't do any construction stuff on the side. I didn't do anything. And we had a, uh, our bills paid off by the sale of a previous house and a savings account built up and stuff. And so we just uh, used that to supplement a little bit. But you know what I found? I found that as I got to know people in the church better and people in the community, I found that I ran across this. I even had somebody ask me one time. They said, so you're the pastor of the Baptist church. So what do you do all day? And I had answers for them. I wasn't just sitting around. I was doing things. About a year and a half later, when I started to take on small jobs and started to do some construction on the side, all of a sudden I was more relatable. You know, we live in a logging community. And so in a logging community like ours, being able to work with your hands is kind of respected. And being able to work hard is kind of respected. Getting in the community and working was a big blessing, a big benefit. Now, it can be a two-edged sword because sometimes I get too busy in it as well. But you know what? It was a big uh, benefit, I think, to our, to our ministry here and our relationship within the community as a whole. In fact, I was talking to somebody not long ago. Well, I think it was, uh, I think it was David when, uh, when he came and they did that discipleship seminar and was with us. And we were talking, and he said to me at one point, he says, uh, boy, that must be pretty difficult balancing construction and, and pastoring and, and all that stuff. And I said, you know, I enjoy it. And I said, you know, I think there's a reason maybe that I had a background in construction before I, God ever called me into the ministry. I like them both, and I enjoy being involved in both, and it's had positive aspects for the ministry. And I told him, I said, here's another thing. This is where I want to be. I'm not somebody that came in the door here looking for the door on the other end that was going to lead to a bigger church and a bigger community and a bigger, a bigger, a bigger. I said, that's not me. I think I'm somebody that God, through my circumstances, has put together with two vocations. I think that people that only have the one vocation of being a pastor need to go to those bigger areas. They need to do that because I just feel like I'm kind of built for this. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's working along with it, to provide for his own way. Why? So there's no stumbling block there. There's open access to the gospel. He's saying, look, I'm laying down my rights. And so he's leading by example. He's saying, look, I'm not asking you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. I'm asking you to lay down this right that you have so that you don't hurt somebody else. 
Not ask them to be vegetarians just to the meat sold in the temple. Just when it's in front of people that will hurt. But he's saying just be willing to put other people first. Well, then in the very last part of the chapter, there's three essentials to living this gospel. The first essential that we see within the passage is that of focus. In verse 19, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more of them. And then he goes on into that long thing about to the Jews, I became as a Jew, as the one under the law, I became under the law, but not without law to God. To those out from under the law, I became as one without the law. Sum it up, I become all things to all people. He's just saying, look, there's a bunch of side issues and side things out there. I'm really not willing to put an offense on a side issue where I might have had an opportunity to lead this person to Christ, but because I was offensive to him in a different way or her, then I have closed the door to the gospel. He says, I'm just really not willing to do that. I'm willing to put the gospel ahead of all things. I don't want to be a stumbling block or an obstacle to the gospel because of either my personality or my approach or something that doesn't really matter. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle will write to young Timothy and say, I have, this is right toward the end of his life, the end of his ministry. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, he kept that focus through his whole life. He sought that reward from God through his whole ministry. And that's the focus that we need to have. He says, look, I'm willing to make myself a slave to benefit you. But then not only the focus, but also the flexibility. Now, we've already got into this a little bit because he talks about being one thing to one person, another thing to another person. And that flexibility that we need to have as we deal with people. Not so rigid, not so bombastic, maybe. But we need to be striving to reach people and find the ways uh, to build into their into their lives. And then lastly, he points to discipline. He uses that of a soldier. Now, in the Greek people had a couple different uh, athletic festivals throughout uh, that they experienced. One of them was, the, uh, was obviously the Olympics. And the other one was the Isthmian Games, I-S-T-H-M-I-A-N Games. And that one actually took place in Corinth each year. And the athletes were required to go through 10 months of rigorous training to be able to qualify to participate. And what does the Apostle Paul do is he takes that and he says, look, I fight, but not as one that beats the air. In other words, uh, everything I'm doing is with purpose in my life. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, and a pine wreath was what you got for winning an event in the Isthmian Games. He says, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable, so I do not run aimlessly, and I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. You see, he's saying if you're going to have a life that is focused on others, that's willing to put other people first, you've got to be disciplined. You're not going to grow deep in your relationship with Christ, your faith in God, without being disciplined. What does an athlete do? They work hard when they would rather be resting. An athlete gets up early when they would rather be sleeping. They maybe go to bed late when they would rather, when they would rather already be sleeping. They don't eat whatever they want. They eat whatever is needed by their body for the training that they're going through to get them ready for that event, for that race. The Apostle Paul says, look, just like an athlete, I do the same things. What was he doing? He was making himself 
stay up late, get up early to work, to have time to, to work and to, do, and to preach the gospel and to build the churches, takes discipline. You see, the point is, when we look at our lives, we can find things that we're willing to get up early for, things that we're willing to stay late for. We find things that we're willing to put more effort into than maybe other things in our lives. The question that he's causing us to ask is this. When is the last time you got up early because of your faith? Something in your relationship with Christ kept you up late because it was worth it. We can't be governed by our appetites, governed by our desires. We have to lead our appetites. We have to lead our desires. We have to discipline ourselves to put other people first, to strive in our relationship with Christ, to grow in Him. So living the gospel. What does the living the gospel entail? Well, you're going to have to be focused. The Apostle Paul kept a narrow focus. We also need to be flexible. We need to be willing to meet people where they are. To use different strengths as you're working with different people. And we need to be disciplined as we put that into practice.